0: Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation
1: on the Indo-Pacific century brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Firma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Thanks, Rich. We're excited today to be joined by one of the United States' most
0: distinguished diplomats and foremost experts on American foreign policy and our dear friend, Ambassador William Burns, or Bill. Bill served under six U.S. presidents. 10 secretaries of state, and has a distinguished career that spans more than 30 years. He joined the Foreign Service in 1982, and by the time he retired in 2014, he had served as deputy secretary of state and achieved the rank of career ambassador, one of only 53 people in the history of the United States diplomatic corps to be given that title. The Atlantic, famously and correctly, I might add, called
1: him America's secret diplomatic weapon. And we can both attest to that. And it's uh, it's great to see you here, Bill. And we're gonna do a two-part series here on, on Tea Leaves. But I should just say, if two episodes is not enough, and I expect it won't be, our listeners should also know that Ambassador Burns has a new book coming out called The Back Channel, A Memoir of American Diplomacy and the Case for Its Renewal. And Bill was kind enough to give Kurt and I advanced copies of the book. We have both read the book from, from cover to cover. And it's really one of the most terrific things to talk about your experiences in the State Department and where we are just in this period in our history. Uh, Bill, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your leadership of the department. Thank you for your uh, mentorship and uh, and friendship. And welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast. Well,
2: it's it's great to be with both of you. It brings back terrific memories.
1: Great. Well, let me get started.
0: Just go right off the bat, Bill. I, I just want to say I love the book and I liked it because it was optimistic Uh, You had a humble uh, sort of review of your remarkable achievements, and it gave us insights into every chapter of your illustrious career. But you also end with some very interesting insights about how to rebuild the State Department and the diplomatic court, and we'll get to that as we go. But you start at the beginning, um, and you try to make clear to the reader that, you know, you're involved in a career that few people understand. And that, in fact, uh, one of the best kept secrets of the United States is that it has this uh, remarkable uh, diplomatic corps and State Department. So tell us, Bill, what does a diplomat do?
2: Well, it's a it's a really good question because I think diplomacy, as both of you know very well, is mostly a quiet endeavor. It literally does operate oftentimes in back channels, kind of out of sight and out of mind. But what diplomats try to do essentially is promote the interests and values of the United States on the international landscape by means short of war. And you don't get very far just by talking nicely to people. Diplomacy is all about harnessing the leverage that American influence and the power of our example can provide in the world. And so day in and day out, diplomats around the world are trying to navigate uh, other landscapes to understand foreign societies, to understand first and foremost, the priorities of their own society and their own government. um, And then to try to Uh, promote American interests um, on those landscapes um, and make sure that we're staying connected to the American people too, which is a huge challenge.
1: Bill, one thing you told me before I headed out to India was uh, you said you can deliver the mail from Washington or you can try to shape what's actually in the mail and actually write some of the letters. And I guess that's an Ambassador Pickering uh, kind of uh, guidance that he gave to you. Say a little bit about what what that means about Uh, what diplomats actually do out in the field. They don't just take instruction from D.C.
2: No, and Tom Pickering, whom you mentioned, was one of the very best diplomats under whom I served. He was the ambassador in Moscow, for example, the first time I worked there in the 1990s. And Pickering's view of his job, of his profession, that he wasn't just a postman. He wasn't Mm -hmm. just there to deliver the mail. He hated to get an instruction from Washington (laughs) that he hadn't first shaped himself. And the best diplomats I worked for, like the two of you you know, understood the importance of doing that. And they could work through what's called a country team, the group of agency heads who work for an ambassador overseas. And he could try to work with the senior defense department person, the senior intelligence community person, the senior commerce department person, um, to try to influence the way policies were made in Washington as well. So oftentimes it's better to, you know, act first and ask for forgiveness later if you're a good ambassador. It also
1: helped, I assume, in your own case, that you had these experiences in Washington, working in the White House, working on the seventh floor, uh, where you actually probably knew a lot better than others about how to actually influence or or change uh, U.S. policy. Rich, to our listeners, you got to tell people what the seventh floor is. Ah, It's the mahogany row of of where our senior leadership of the State Department is housed and where you have spent a good chunk of your life.
2: Yeah, it's the part of the State Department we try to conceal with the people who appropriate money in the (laughs) Congress for the State Department because it looks too nice. But no, being able to operate in Washington and understand how the process works um, is essential to being a good effective diplomat overseas, too. And you know I came into the Foreign Service in an era where lots of the people I worked for, it's been almost their entire career overseas. Um, but increasingly, during the course of my career, um, people had a balance of experience in Washington, experience overseas, and that's really crucial.
1: I just want to ask you um, about resourcing of, of the State Department. And Uh, You know, I I think there's one statistic in your book which talks about there's been a 50% cut to our kind of diplomatic effort over the course of the last several decades. And this is one of these constant struggles we have with Congress. I actually thought we had crossed over this Rubicon maybe during um, the Bush administration with uh, second Bush administration. And there seemed to be this bipartisan consensus about the importance of diplomacy and foreign assistance. But this administration and Secretary Tillerson, they, they kind of wiped out the department. And I just wonder, how do do we get past that? And what what is the impact of that?
2: Well, I mean, the first point is, you're right, you know, as um, much concern, there's a nice diplomatic term, as I have for the (laughs) way in which this administration has treated diplomacy in the State Department in the last couple of years. The truth is the drift in American diplomacy had been underway for quite some time. As you mentioned, Rich, you know, the foreign affairs budget for the United States was cut by nearly 50% between 1985 and 2000. and that reflected, I think, you know, a sense of complacency at a moment, the end of the Cold War, when the United States was really unchallenged in the world. Um, and for some people, it seemed that diplomacy wasn't so necessary. Um, then came 9-11 um, at the, in 2001, a terrible shock to the American system. And after that, we tended to invert the roles of force and diplomacy. So diplomacy was kind of an under-resourced afterthought. Um I think that a lot was done you know through the efforts of Secretaries of State of both parties um, and oftentimes the White House to try to reverse that um, but I think what we 've seen in the last couple of years um is a source of deep concern to me and to lots of people who care about American diplomacy, you know, where the Department was faced with the biggest cuts in its modern history, thirty percent cuts in its overall budget, you saw a decrease by 50% in the number of new foreign service officers Mm. coming in, and a lot of really pernicious practices that don't have to do with the budget, but had to do with going after individual career officers just because they had worked on controversial policies in the previous administration. So in a sense, I think what this administration has done, especially early on, is taken a drift in American diplomacy and accelerated it and made it infinitely worse. Mm.
0: Bill, I want to ask you about uh, formative figures in your career, both academically and then your early uh, tenure as a diplomat. So uh, we both had the great good fortune to study under the great Australian strategist, uh, now departed, Hedley Bull at Oxford. Uh, Tell me what, you know, how did he impact your thinking about the world and what kind of relationship did you have with him?
2: Well I you know I was a very impressionable you know 22 year old when I went to Oxford as a graduate student and I always respected the fact that Hedley Bull a very accomplished Australian academic was quite patient with unformed minds like me um, but what Bull stressed as you well know was an appreciation of history and and the fact that in order to understand international affairs you had to have a sense of history And I think a pretty realistic view of the way in which the international system worked. Um, You know, a system in which nation states were, and I think still are at the core of it, but where increasingly you had a lot of non-state actors, whether it's in the business community or in civil society or even terrorist groups, who were affecting the way in which that international system worked. And, you know, he wasn't, he was a realist, but he wasn't a pessimist about the possibilities, at least, of creating at least some rough sense of order in that system as well. So, you know, like you, Kurt, I learned a lot from him. Um, And I think his book, The Anarchical Society, is as good a framework for understanding the way in which the world works as any that I've read.
0: So uh, jump ahead a couple of years. Uh, you joined the Foreign Service. Uh, some of the most interesting passages in the early part of the book uh, uh, relate to your uh, rather obvious sense of respect for uh, a few key leaders. And I, I would, Rich and I talked a little bit about it. I, I think you have a... Um, a unique regard for Secretary Baker. Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe you could say a a few words about why he was such a special Secretary of State, what kind of relationship you had with him, and why he will be regarded as one of the famous and uh, foremost uh, Secretaries of State Mm -hmm. during the post-war era.
2: Well, I think um, I have enormous regard for Secretary of State Baker and for the team of people who worked with uh, President George H.W. Bush at the end of the Cold War. Um, You know, in Baker, in Brent Scowcroft, the National Security Advisor, Colin Powell was then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You had a group of people who were experienced, who could disagree with one another, but were collegial. And President Bush himself set the tone. Um, Baker himself was not a grand strategist. You know, he, he. he wouldn't have known Nedley Bull from, you know, a football coach. But he, um, he was, um, he, he had a relationship with President Bush forty one, um, which was one of the sources of his influence. I think in Washington as well as overseas, he was as good a negotiator as I've ever seen. Uh, he had a keen sense.
0: So, so why, Bill? So wh- um, why was he such a good? How did he? demonstrate this diplomatic quality?
2: Uh, Part of it was his relationship with the president, um, because any good negotiator in American diplomacy has to speak with the absolute authority of the president of the United States. No one questioned that in Baker. He had a really clear sense, like any good card player of his own hand, of the leverage that he was holding. And at the end of the Cold War, the United States really had unsurpassed leverage. He had a really keen sense of his opponent's hand in other words not every card in it but a sense of the history that informed how they were going to play it um you know a kind of strategic empathy which is i think is really important for effective diplomats and then third and not least um he played it with uh, he played that hand and played that game with uncommon skill he knew when to hold them and when to fold them he had a sense of timing um he had a sense of Um, You know, the moment when you had to try to close a deal. I'll never forget um, the one nine-hour meeting that he had with Hafez al-Assad, who was the brutal dictator, who was the father of the current brutal dictator in Syria. And this meeting went on for literally nine hours. Neither Assad nor Baker got up once, notwithstanding dozens of cups of tea during this to go to the bathroom. It was kind of a contest of endurance between the two of them. But at one point, um, Baker got kind of fed up with a position that Assad was taking and got out of his seat, quite theatrically slammed his binder together. And I said, I guess we're done. We're going to leave. And I watched as the Syrian foreign minister then Farouk Shara sort of nervously was whispering with Assad, and Assad said in Arabic to him, is he serious? And Shara said, yeah, I think he is. And then Assad calmed him down, Baker sat down, and ultimately, um, he was able to prevail in persuading Assad to have Syria come to the Madrid peace conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing I'd say about Baker, which always impressed me, which is, I think, underappreciated, is just persistence. You know, people look back at either the coalition that was put together to fight Desert Storm or the Madrid-Middle East Peace Conference, which followed right on its heels, and think this was all foreordained. Well, it wasn't. Outside his office in Houston to this day, Secretary Baker has a whole wall that are covered with cartoons and the U.S. press and the foreign press throughout the nine trips he made to the Middle East and the run-up to Madrid, and most of them are cynical, if not snarky. Calling into question, you know, Baker's off on this quixotic attempt. And the truth was, Baker knew that he knew how strong his hand was. He knew he just had to keep at it. And it was persistence, along with all those other qualities I mentioned, that made him such a successful negotiator. I'm going to
0: turn over to Rich, but just one small correction, Bill, to what you said. And I'm not sure mm. if you got the memo. You referred to Assad as a brutal dictator. Mm. If you were still in the diplomatic corps, we would refer to him as a misunderstood, terrific guy. <laughs> so,
1: You know... Um, just back to Baker, there was, this was an incredible period for the United States. Yeah. The Soviet Union was crumbling, Germany was coming together. Uh, as you talked about, there was Desert Storm, there was the Mideast peace. You know, The United States was kind of sitting right. in what you described, this unipolar moment. And uh, I guess a few questions about that. Uh, one, events were happening so fast you know, back to this tradecraft of diplomacy. Did you guys see any of this coming? I guess really when it comes to the ascendancy of the United States and the collapsing of, of the Soviet Union. And then two, was there anything we could have done to maintain that US moment longer uh, than we have? Mm. And, and it's, I guess it's a follow-up question about where are we uh, today?
2: Yeah, no, those those are all really good questions, Rich. I mean, I think what made that moment unique, as I said before, was the intersection of a moment on the international landscape when American power and influence were really unrivaled and a group of people who had the combination of under President Bush 41, who had a combination of a sense of, of... caution and concern about second and third order consequences, but also a sense of daring. I mean, German reunification, for example, which happened literally you know, within a little more than a year after the Berlin Wall fell, was also not foreordained. Um, and there, the odds in many ways were against Germany being reunified and staying a member of NATO during that period. And, you know, it took a lot of daring on the part of uh, President George H.W. Bush and Baker and others to help pull that off as well. I don't, you know, the... In the sort of natural order of things, that unipolar moment was at some point going to ebb, mm-hmm. given the rise and fall of other major powers in the world um, it was It would be very hard to sustain that indefinitely. I think what I always thought at least Bush and Baker understood was that you had to make use of that moment um, to shape and reshape alliances, relationships with former adversaries, um, you know international institutions at a moment when we had such influence and a capacity to shape them, there was an alternative view, I think, even within that administration, that then Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney, I think, subscribed to, which was that, you know, you, you had to be a lot more cold-blooded about sustaining that hegemonic moment, in a sense, for the United States. And there was a an active debate, you know, back and forth between the State Department and the Defense Department in those years as well, which was a healthy thing. Um, I thought in later years, a decade later, you know, in, in the Iraq War in 2003, we accelerated the end of that unipolar American moment. We certainly did it a few years later in the great financial crisis of 2008. So again, this was not a moment that was going to be sustained forever. But I think it was, you know, we, through our own unforced errors, accelerated the end of that moment. Now, I. I'm the last thing I'd say is I'm not a pessimist. You know, I still think at this moment, to answer your last question, we still have a better hand to play than any of our rivals, if we play it wisely. And that's really the question right mm-hmm. now.
1: Just going back to Iraq, I know you write a lot about that, both mm-hmm. uh, Desert Storm and then, you know, the, the second mm-hmm. kind of uh, incursion into Iraq. Um and there's a lot of the same players, uh, Vice President Cheney, and for example, he really, as you describe him, goes all out on the, on the second turn. Just Can you go back and explain the thinking in Gulf War I, uh, President Bush decided not mm-hmm. to go into Baghdad and, and knock out Saddam? And some people would say you had that opportunity mm-hmm. and you missed it.
2: Well, I think there were at least a couple of factors I remember in the discussions in that period, and I think Baker shared the concern first that the day after um, would be a lot more complicated in a, you know, um, in a society like Iraq's um, with a, again another brutal dictator Saddam Hussein keeping a lid on a lot of sectarian and ethnic passions. Um, that you had to be really careful what you wished for in a mm. sense of what would come on the day after. And second, I think both. President Bush 41 and Baker, as well as Gocroft, understood very well that we had put together a coalition, in many respects unprecedented, um, around a certain premise, which was to expel the Iraqis from Kuwait. That coalition would have started to fracture if we had changed the moved the goalposts. Um, and decided that we were going to topple Saddam Hussein at that point. Now I don't think we got everything right in terms of the kind of post-war arrangements in Iraq. But I think that was that decision not to continue to pursue Saddam, which in military terms would have been a relatively easy thing to do at that time. That was a wise one, and it was an illustration to me of, I remember something Baker said at the time, that sometimes the smartest foreign policy decisions are things you choose not to do, as opposed to right. things that you could do easily as right. well. It's and a good that was, lesson. And that was a mark, I think, of their particular impress, particularly impressive brand of statecraft.
1: just take it out of geopolitics for a second and into your back to your career Mm -hmm. and you served as a junior officer in jordan yep and then went back as ambassador you served as a mid-level to senior officer in moscow Mm -hmm. and then went back as ambassador that must have been enormously uh gratifying interesting to to go back in in that capacity as ambassador i mean maybe you could just give folks a sense of what it's like to to show up in, well, I remember, in both Amman and Moscow in yeah, those and those different jo- capacities. I mean, well, in
2: Jordan in particular in a bit of my first posting on the foreign service I'll never forget the shocked look on the face of the local employees the Jordanians the <laughs> foreign service nationals working in the embassy when I came walking back in as ambassador here's this young guy the most junior <laughs> officer in the embassy who had left before and so they're wondering what does the American foreign service come to um, but I I I was fortunate in the sense that when I came back as ambassador um, It turned out to be a particularly consequential period for Jordan, King Hussein, who had been on the throne for 47 years, died uh, six months after I became ambassador. Uh, His oldest son, Abdullah, succeeded him um, and after a lot of drama in which the crown prince, formerly King Hussein's brother, uh, had been changed. Um, And so it was one of those periods when as an American ambassador, you feel you can make a difference. With uh, a friend of the United States, Whose stability remains to this day very important.
1: Hmm. And Moscow, going back in a very different capacity as well? Well, I also went back to a very different Moscow, too. Right. You
2: know, when I served uh, in the mid 1990s in Boris Yeltsin, Russia, it was a Russia that was flat on its back economically, in terms of its standing in the world. and when I came back, it was in Vladimir Putin's second term as president, uh, Russia that was surfing on $120 a barrel oil, mm. that was feeling its oats, that was determined, especially in the pugnacious persona of Vladimir Putin, um, to show that it was no longer the 98-pound weakling on the beach, and it was going to push back. Um, and so it helped, I always thought, to have served as the chief political officer in that earlier era in Russia, because in order to understand What became the kind of smoldering aggressiveness of Putin, it helped to understand the sense of loss and humiliation that lots of Russians felt in the 90s alongside the sense of hope that came with the end of communism.
0: Bill, I want to take you back. I I like Rich's questions, but I want to ask you more about Iraq. Um, So I I read the section carefully. I I found the section on Iraq, uh, particularly the second Uh, go around. I I found it to be more of a recounting than a reckoning. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's carefully done from the perspective of the State Department. I think you have to argue that, you know, probably a little bit of a sideshow there in terms Mm -hmm. of what the dominant um, action was, both at the Pentagon and the White House. But I'd I'd like to ask you more generally um, to offer your views about that period. I I think what, what, what comes across is you're a you know you are uh, you have a lot of goodwill towards a lot of good people um i i'm struck by the challenge that that period presents some very good people making some very bad decisions mm-hmm. and how do, how do you square that and and how do you think about that experience in american foreign policy many people link Our domestic politics currently issues associated Mm. with upheaval refugees back to those monumental decisions? Uh, How do you see it?
2: Well, it was, um, you know, the biggest unforced error in American foreign policy, certainly in the three and a half decades that I served. Um, You know, it's a painful period to rethink and to write about, um, because you have to be self-critical as well. Um, And you not only wonder, but question why you weren't more effective in pushing back against an approach to the war in Iraq in 2003, which was based on some deeply flawed assumptions about how easy it would be to manage the day after in Iraq. We tried to be honest. I was leading the Near East Bureau in the State Department at the time for Colin Powell about our concerns. Um, but but I can't suggest that we were at all effective um, in fighting those bureaucratic battles in that period. And you're right. The consequences of that terrible unforced error um, are continue to be with us today. Now, I mean, the, the one thing I'd add, Kurt, is that it's not, it's not as if the dysfunctions of the Middle East or the Arab world are purely a function of that huge mistake in American foreign policy. But we certainly accelerated a lot of the dysfunctions and fragilities in the arab world and for all the focus on you know iran's threatening behavior you know the iraq war in 2003 more than anything else opened up the landscape for the iranians just as the overthrow of the taliban in a way did to their east in afghanistan
0: yeah. bill when i read that section though on iraq what i can't tell mm. did the state department as a general institution uh, make suggestions about how to conduct the war more effectively did it uh, was it an outlier to say don't do this you got to be more careful um, uh, did it want to be part of the team and not want to be an outlier? And so I, I can't tell mm. when I read your recounting mm. about how strategically the department Colin Powell Rich mm-hmm. Armitage are good friends. Mm-hmm. Really position themselves.
2: Well, I think there were two phases which I try to recount in the book. The first phase, running up until about the summer of 2002, where um, you know we genuinely thought that we could, as Powell sometime, sometimes put it, slow down the train um, toward war. Um, it was my view at the time that. Um, you know, Saddam continued to pose threats, um, serious threats, but you could contain those threats at the time. Um, By the summer of 2002, it had become clear that we had lost that fight and that the question was whether you would embark on a sort of smart path or a dumb path toward war. And so I think in that second phase, after, you know, roughly the summer of 2002, Um, what we tried to do was emphasize two things, that you wanted to have as much company on the takeoff as you could have internationally because you needed on the landing, given the complexities of the day after. So we argued, for example, for not just one, but a second UN Security Council resolution to add legitimacy to the effort and build a coalition. And second, we continued to argue strongly that the outs, much of the outside opposition, the Ahmed Chalabi's of the world, who were the darlings of, you know, some of our detractors in the Pentagon and in parts of the White House, um, had no credibility inside Iraq. And so, you know, if you were going to approach that day after post-Saddam sensibly, you had to take the time. Um, To make sure that you weren't just so dependent on outsiders as well. Now, we didn't succeed in that effort either. And we ended up with a policy process that I think was badly broken um, throughout that period. So, um, you know, there were a huge set of mistakes went into that process.
0: Ambassador Burns, Bill, uh, thanks so much for sitting down with us. You've given us so much to ponder as we think about the future of U.S. foreign policy and diplomacy, and you've given us a lot to think about with respect to your book. We want to remind our listeners that this is just one part of a two-part series with Bill, and in the meantime, we encourage you all to rush out and pick up the (laughs) Ambassador's book, The Back Channel. It really is tremendous and one of the best and most important books on American diplomacy in
1: some time. Yeah, I I would echo that. The book is terrific. Thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.